Father, we can rely on you because you're patient with us and you love us and you hold us in your hand. Lord, we do pray now as we look at the men and women of faith from the Old Testament and the lives that they lived and the hope that they had, I do pray that that would be an encouragement for us today, this side of the cross, to love you, to follow you, to persevere to the very end, whether it's sweet or bitter. And we do pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews 11. Begin reading in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins. And goat skins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not Be made perfect. God's word to us. There are two big truths in this text that I want to bring to your attention. Two big truths that we need to understand to help us tie this chapter together, conclude this chapter, and help us to be able to apply it accurately or apply it the right way. We're going to summarize this with two phrases tonight. Victory through faith. The number two, inheritance. Through faith. So let's jump right in to number one victory through faith, starting in verse 30, going through verse 38. And here we're going to look first at victorious living. Victorious living. Some preachers can only talk about victorious living, and I'm going to tell you tonight about victorious living. It's right here in the text. Lots of victory. But I'm hijacking that phrase because it's a good biblical phrase. And we're going to see what the Bible says about a truly victorious life. We're going to hear about it. Verse 30, it picks up right where the author left off. And where did the author leave off last time? He left off with the story of Moses, right? Now he brings up the next event in Israel's history. And what's that going to be? After Moses, then who comes onto the scene? Joshua, right? And then what does Joshua do? He starts the... C word, you can say it. 
This is a quiet group tonight. What does Joshua do? Conquest. He does the conquest. And he plows through the promised land, conquering enemies and taking over the land. And that's where the author turns to now. Now all those promises have been made to Abram first and to Isaac and Jacob and to Joseph. They're going to enter the land. Now these things are starting to come about. Joshua is going through the conquest and he's defeating God's enemies and taking over the land. So first you see in verse 30 the conquest of Jericho. Or you could call it the conquest by faith. Look at verse 30 again. It says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And who's familiar with this story? All of us, right? Turn over to Joshua 6 and we'll get reminded of it. This is one of my favorite stories in Sunday school when I was growing up. How can one little boy not like this story? Where you march around a city for seven, seven times and all of a sudden the walls fall on flat. How can you not like the story? But take a look at a reminder of the story in Joshua 6. Look at verse 1. You see the unassailable city first. Joshua 6 verse 1 says, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. Now what does that mean? Because of the sons of Israel. They had heard about, and we'll see further, what Israel just did. How they left Egypt, how they crossed the Red Sea, and now people were becoming afraid of these Israelites. So the city of Jericho was tightly shut. No one's going in, no one's coming out. That's the unassailable city we're looking at. Now look at the unbelievable instructions. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and its valiant warriors. And here's... The instructions he gives to Joshua. You shall march around the city, all the men of war that you have circling around the city once. You're going to do that for six days. Then verse 4. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. So those are the... Now think about the instructions. These are unbelievable instructions. That's what we're calling. And what would you think if you were one of the soldiers in Joshua's army? Let's be honest. What would you think with these instructions? Uh, Think of a few options. You would say, I don't see how that's going to do any good at all. At least that would come into your mind. Or maybe you'd say, I'm not going to make a fool of myself to the people of Jericho. Or you might say, surely the Lord has a much more practical plan than that. I mean, really, just march around and the walls are going to fall down flat. Were these instructions unbelievable? Yeah, unbelievable instructions. But nevertheless, these were the Lord's specific directions for Joshua and his army. This is what he called them to do. Now look at verse 11. Did they obey? Unwavering obedience in verse 11. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning. And the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And these, all the details that he's just been instructed to do now, they're carrying them out. Verse 13, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. They went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. And the rear guard, rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. The second day, they did the same thing. Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the manner in the same manner Seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, in verse 16, when the the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And they keep following. They keep obeying. Look at verse 20. 
So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city, exactly like God had instructed. So from this really little snippet here in Hebrews 11, based on this bigger story, back in Joshua 6, God is making it perfectly clear to us that the only way for this to be accomplished was what? Two words again that we have. We're seeing it for six weeks now. What are they? By faith. And that's it. Now rewind in time a little bit. Rewind in time. Just a tiny bit in Israel's history. This whole conquest of Jericho, everything that we just saw happen, all this, these amazing things that just happened, how God delivered the city to the Israelites, all of it turns on one woman who was a Gentile and a harlot, Rahab. You imagine that. All of this turned on this one little lady who was a Gentile and a harlot. So here in verse 31, you have the faith of Rahab, or if you want to call it reconnaissance by faith, the successful reconnaissance mission by faith. Look at verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Now, there are some texts that you can light upon like a bird and enjoy the nectar. You've seen those kind of texts in the Bible. And there's some other tough ones that you want to grab by the shoulders and you wrestle with it until you understand it. You've been to those texts, right? There are some texts where it's like you're walking in the woods at nighttime and you trip over a log and you can't get up again. This is one of those kind because you don't see it coming until you really start thinking about what's happening here. And many, many, many people ask many, many, many pastors all throughout church history, how could Rahab have done this and she still be commended for being a woman of faith. So we're going to think about this just for a little bit. Many people have stumbled over this, and actually some Jewish historical sources like Josephus, they even left out the fact that she was a harlot. They tried to either omit it or cover up her background. They struggled with this. Um, and among the commentaries, if you ever want to study this further, and Kent Hughes' commentary, he, he had one of the most helpful sections on this, by the way. But I'd like to say six things about this, briefly. This is not the whole sermon, but six things as we think through this idea of Rahab. Because if we don't think through this carefully, we're going to miss the point of why she's here. Because there's a very, very important reason that she's in this text. So I'm going to say six things about this. The faith of Rahab, number one, is that Rahab acted in faith. That's the most important thing that you should get from this, is that she acted in faith. Now, if you look back at verse 31, what is the specific act of faith mentioned? We want to be very careful to how we understand this. What's the specific thing that happened by faith? What does the text say? She did not perish by faith. That's specifically what it's talking about. She did not perish by faith. And what was the occasion for her not perishing? What else does the text say? After she did what? She welcomed the spies in peace. In James 2.25, if you want to look over there some other time, it commends her for nearly the same thing. Welcoming the spies in peace. That's specifically what she's commended for and then not being destroyed, not perishing along with the rest of the city of Jericho. So she acted in faith, and that's why she is commended. Okay? That's a very important note to make. Number two, there's something else that happened. In context, as you all know, this event was bound up with what? A lie. 
or really multiple lies. And we can't really deny that. So turn back. Hopefully you're still over in the Joshua area. Turn back to Joshua chapter 2. The spies had come from the Israelites. She had received them into her house. And then she gets a knock on the door from the king's men. The men go up and hide on the roof. What are you going to do if you're Rahab? What are you going to do if you're in the house? It's nighttime. Everything's quiet. And you hear that knock on the door. What are you going to do? So put yourself in her shoes. And think back at this text. So the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. So I, and he knew what happened. He knew why they were there. He knew full well. And here's Rahab's response. Look at verse 4, back in Joshua chapter 2. Or just listen if you haven't gotten there yet. But the woman had taken these, the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me. Was that the truth? truth. But I did not know where they were from. Lie number one, verse five. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. How many lies is that now? Lie number two. I do not know where the men went. Lie number three. Pursue them quickly because you'll overtake them. How many lies is that now? Lie number four. But she had brought them on the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Finally, a biblical justification for lying to each other. Here it is, if you ever want it, right there. So we need to say a third thing about it, and that is, I'll ask you the question, is a lie a lie? Yes, a lie is a lie. Most people explain this by saying that she chose the lesser of two evils. And I get that. The only problem with that view is, has, ever God listed, has God ever listed lying as a lesser sin? In the Ten Commandments, does he say, now I'm going to move on to the lesser sins. You should not bear false witness. Is that how God has presented it in his word? No. So Calvin is right. We'll read this quick Calvin quote. He said, those who hold what is called a dutiful lie something that you forced to do or something that you could do to save somebody or this kind of thing. People who hold that a dutiful lie is excusable or okay, people who hold to that view, they do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. And I believe he's right. On the whole, it was the will of God that the spies should be delivered, but he did not approve of saving their life by falsehood. Whoa. Where are you right now? Are you agreeing or disagreeing? You've got to think through this carefully. So now you're thinking, wow, Stephen and Calvin, you're being way rough on Rahab. What about Cory Tin Boom? Would you have left all the, all the Jews in hiding? Would you have let them die, Stephen and Calvin? I guess you would have. Nah, let's keep thinking through it. We have more to say about this. Number four, Rahab was doing what came naturally. Easy observation. She was doing what came naturally to her. What was her profession? Don't answer it out loud. Think about what her profession was. Were honesty and integrity part of her life? Mm. She was a Gentile. She was uninstructed in the law. That doesn't mean she had no conscience, but it means that she had seared it pretty well. Okay? This, is, this was her situation in life. And I think that probably patience with Rahab is in order. Um, I had a really good friend, or I still have a really good friend, Still around. Um, he became a believer. 
And before that, he was the biggest liar I had ever met. All he did was lie. You could not trust a single thing he said. He was a great guy. We loved him, but you just could not trust him. It was always lying. But maybe a year or two after he became a believer, out of the blue, he, he just brought it up. He said, the Lord's really convicted me about my lying. And I remember a decisive moment in that guy's life where he stopped. And you, he became a trustworthy person. He had, now from my perspective, it happened real quick, but the Lord had been teaching him over time. He had grown. He came out of a pagan environment where lying was just what they did. It came naturally to him. And I think it's the same situation that Rahab was in, because growth is a part of our walk with God. Matter of fact there. Number five, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Near the beginning of our study on this chapter, in chapter 11, I told you this. I'll pull the quote up there for you from D.A. Carson. He says, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility, ever. They are right there together at the same time. Then on the other hand, human beings are responsible creatures. However, human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. They belong together in perfect coexistence. We are completely responsible. I didn't say other words. I said we're completely responsible, and God is completely sovereign. Our responsibility never does diminish his sovereignty, and his sovereignty never diminishes our responsibility. They're perfectly going together. So we have to conclude that Rahab did something right. And at the same time, it was mixed with something wrong. Can God use our mixed efforts? Does God use our mixed efforts? Is God using my mixed efforts to preach to you as I've struggled with my own sin throughout the week? Is God still using me? Does God use you? Yes, he uses our mixed efforts. So this is different from saying that she chose the lesser of two evils, and that's okay. And that's why we're bringing all this up. And this is different from saying that the good act justified the wrong act, because that didn't, is not the case either. So the question is, why, did not, why didn't God condemn her for her lying? Because she did lie, why didn't the Lord punish her for it? Another question. Why didn't the Lord punish her for being a harlot? Another question. Why doesn't the Lord punish us for all of our sins right now that we all deserve to pay for forever? Why not? You can think of one word. What is it? Grace. Where do we get grace? By faith. She put all of her faith, number six, in the one true God of Israel. She put all of her faith in that one true God who reigned over the people of Israel and over all the world. So ultimately at issue, who did she fear? She feared God over man. So after all this, after I've got way too caught up in this ethical dilemma and now probably got you even more caught up than I was this week, Dale Ralph Davis, as he was preaching through this passage in Joshua, he said, if you get too caught up on the ethical side of this and all the dilemmas involved, he said it would be like a wife opening up her refrigerator, showing her husband all of the great food she made, all these great desserts, this great beautiful salad, and then all the husband sees is, oh, there's a little dust on top of the fridge, and he walks away all concerned about the dust. That's what it would be like if you just focus on her lie. Because the text, does it focus on the lie of Rahab? No, it doesn't. Whenever the Bible mentions Rahab, it has positive things to say about her. No rebuke, just commendation. And don't turn there, but Joshua 2, 9, Rahab said, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And she also said in that chapter, the Lord your God 
He is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. When she faced the question from the king, when she hid the spies, what ultimately was she doing? She was putting her own life in danger. The king found out, they searched the house, she would have been dead. She feared God over man. She is ultimately, because of this, the perfect example of, for us of victory through faith. The perfect example of faith here in the context of Hebrews. The perfect example of how we should apply faith. And that's why we've spent more time on her, because she is a great example of this. She risked her life to carry out God's plans. She left everything she knew about her pagan life to follow God and to be with his people. She suffered by leaving everything she knew to identify with the people of God, just like we learned about Moses in the previous passage. She's the perfect example of faith. She left it all to serve the living God. Now, at this point, the author has brought us from Genesis to Joshua. And in verse 32, he asks us a question. Continuing on with the history of Israel here, he asks us a question. He said, what more shall, what more shall I say? What more shall I say? Well, there's a lot more he could say, right? There's a whole lot more he could have said. He could go on and on to give a full history of Israel, but here's his answer. He said, time would fail me. I wouldn't have enough time if I had to tell of Gideon, of, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, all the judges. I wouldn't have time to go through all the details of the judges of the book of Judges. I wouldn't have time to talk about David and Samuel. I wouldn't have time to talk about all the kings of Israel. I wouldn't have time to go through all the historical books to go from 1 Samuel and to the, to the kings. I wouldn't have time. And I don't have time to go into all the prophets. I don't have time to do an exposition of the major prophets and the minor prophets. I don't have time for it. So now he throws out this rapid-fire, bullet-point list of these great acts of faith. And you see these, there's ten that just listed out really quickly. He said, they conquered kingdoms. In the second Samuel, verse, chapter 8, don't turn there, but there's a little taste of this where David, he conquers Philistines, and then he, de- then he defeats Moab, and then he defeats King Hadadezer, and then Arameans come in and try to help King had a desert, and then he destroys them while they're trying to help him. He just, they're destroying everybody, conquering kingdoms. And the list goes on and on and on of all the military victories of David and other kings. Two, they performed acts of righteousness. Three, they obtained promises. Abraham saw the son of promise born. He saw Isaac born. Joshua got to enter the promised land. They obtained these promises. Number four, they shut the mouths of lions. Remember anyone in scripture who killed lions? David killed a lion to protect his sheep. Samson killed a lion to protect himself. That's what he was used to doing. God protected Daniel in a den full of lions. Shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. These are the first firefighters in Israel. God protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a fiery furnace that King Nebuchadnezzar threw them into. Six, they escaped the edge of the sword. Jezebel, in her wrath, was trying to kill the prophets. Guess who escaped? Elijah, escaping the edge of the sword. From weakness, they were made strong. They went from humility to exaltation. Even Samson, the most prideful of all the judges, at the very end of his life, was blind and weak, and he asked God for strength at that one time to defeat more Philistines. From weakness, they became strong. And these are people who became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Now, if you remember what the Philistines did after David killed Goliath, what did the Philistines do? They ran. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Elijah raised the son of the widow from Zarephath. All these things happened by faith. All these victories. So you know why time would fail him at this point? Because he has so many stories he could tell all throughout the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi of 
great exploits that were done by faith. Now, what effect should this section have on us? The question we have to ask. I believe that this section should encourage us to do great things for the kingdom. It should. Things like telling our coworkers about the gospel. Things like walking down the road and telling your neighbor about the gospel. Things like adopting a child. Things like planting a church in a rough community or whatever. The list goes on and on. Doing great things for the kingdom of God. Having a greater drive to do great things because we have a great high priest. William Carey always used to say, expect great things from God. And then what? Attempt great things for God. Now that is all very fine and dandy, very exciting, and very motivating, very empowering, great stories. But is this the only way to be a victorious Christian? Is this the only way to live a victorious Christian life? Is there another side to the story? What about the men and women of faith all throughout history who died prematurely? Think about any of those. Think about David Brainerd. He carried the gospel to the Native Americans in the 1700s, and he died at age 29. Ann Judson, Mike brought her up a few weeks ago, Adoniram Judson's wife, he was put in prison. He was facing all kinds of problems, and she was stuck with the burden of a baby, trying to protect his Bible translation manuscript, all these things. And she lived to the ripe age of 36. Victorious, right? Robert Murray McShane, he faithfully preached all the way until he was 29. Jim Elliott, even more victorious. He tried to reach the Alka Indians, didn't get to say a word of gospel to them, and died at age 28. Victorious, right? Hmm. Were these people's lives less victorious than a George Mueller? Were these people's lives less victorious than an Elizabeth Elliot or a Lloyd-Jones or an R.C. Sproul? Were they less victorious? Mm -mm. Some lived long, some lived short. Did their extreme suffering and early deaths mean they were doing something wrong? Did they mean they were going about faith the wrong way? Just as we do great exploits, just as we do great things, By faith, we also face persecution and sickness and disease and mistreatment and hostility and temptation by faith. It's the same answer. Living by faith does not mean having great success all the time. Here's the point this chapter is leading up to. We can be equally victorious in suffering If we go about it by faith. So we saw victorious living. Now we see victorious suffering. In verses 35. Second part of verse 35 to verse 38. Now you can see on the screen or in your text there. there, There's two groups. Well that's really bad. Two groups in this text. You see this Gideon, Barak, Samson. All these guys who. They did all these great things. But look at this break right in the middle of verse 35. And others, or I think a better translation would be, but others. What about these two groups? What did they go through? What did the second group go through? They had an entirely different experience, but equally commended for their faith. What did they go through? What was their experience? Look back at the text. They did not get their loved ones back by resurrection. Instead, 
They were tortured. He said, I don't want that release. I want a better resurrection. They did not conquer any kingdoms. They got mockings and scourgings instead. They got chains and imprisonment. They didn't make any armies run away from them. They got pelted with stones instead. They got sawn in two. That's one of the worst ways I could ever imagine dying, being sawn in half. They were tempted. They didn't escape the edge of the sword. They were met with the sword and put to death with the sword. They didn't shut the mouths of any lions. They went about in sheepskins. They went about in goatskins. They didn't become mighty in any war. They became destitute. They became afflicted. They became ill-treated. They spent their lives wandering in deserts. They spent their lives in mountains and caves. They spent their lives in holes in the ground. Victory? How did they go through it all? They had something much, much better in mind. They had a better resurrection in mind, is what the text says. We all have had loved ones who have passed away. We can think about the joy of what it would be like if they were back with us. And we all, have, we all have these thoughts. Every one of us has been affected by this. But these people were victorious in their suffering. They had a better resurrection in mind. Think about that loved one that you want back. And think about having that person back forever in a perfect place. That's the kind of mindset they had. That's the kind of resurrection they had in mind. That's the kind of perspective they had on their life. Because they walked by faith and not by sight. And they were not in the category that the world put them in. The world mistreated them. The world said, you're not worthy of us. You don't belong with us. You don't deserve to be here. But from God's point of view, how did he view them? The world was not worthy of them. And that's a great truth. So there are two groups here. There's victorious living and there's victorious suffering. But both, both equally victorious. Now what group are you in? What group are you in? If you had to measure yourself up with this. Think about this. Uh, I had a job once that uh, I, I hated. I'll be honest. It was a terrible job. <laughs> the, the boss would belittled me. He gave me a really hard time. He never let up. It was just, it was just a miserable place to be with. Uh, and, and very little pay. You know what I did? I got on my computer. I started applying for jobs. Hmm. It took a while. I had a very bad resume. I think I probably still do. And, but I had that choice in this country to do that. And eventually, I got a new job. So I'm not talking about throwing discernment out the window. I'm not talking about throwing out your common sense. Don't do that. If you leave, you know, and a few months later you say, well, Stephen said I have to stay in my really bad job. I don't get paid anything out of my, I didn't ever said that. But I'm saying sometimes that there is not an easy way out. That's the point. Sometimes there is no easy way out of the situation. Your loved one is on the deathbed. You found out that you have cancer. You found out that someone you love has cancer. Or you have a group of friends, and you get met with this choice. Either you go with your friends into the certain situation that you know God does not want you to do, and you go into it, and you get to keep your friends. Or you say, no, I'm not going to do that, and you lose that group of friends. Or you're in a situation at work where either you lie to a client, and you get to keep your job, or you tell the truth, and you lose your job. Sometimes there is no easy way. Sometimes there is no easy way out. So what group are you in? I think throughout life, you're going to find yourself probably straddling between both of these groups. But very often, in situations 
where the only answer you have is to hold on to Christ no matter the cost. The original readers of this letter, they were in a situation where either they hold on to Christ, they hold on to his one single perfect sacrifice, or they bow the knee to Caesar. Those those were their two options. There wasn't a third option. They didn't have this thing where, okay, well, I'll just go ahead and do that. No, it's either you follow Christ or you bow the knee to Caesar. That's it. There was no court to appeal to. There was no lawyer who would take their case. This is a situation in which there was no other legitimate option. So what would keep them going? That's the question we have to ask. What would keep these readers going? How could they stay put, as the author is instructing them to do? How could they stay put right where they are and simply wait for the axe to fall? How could they do it? We saw victory through faith. Now we're going to see inheritance through faith in our last two verses. Look at back at verse 39. We'll read that together. Through verse 40. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. That is a mind twister, isn't it? What does the verse mean? What's he getting at? Hopefully... I'm going to ask a few questions, and hopefully it will begin to be made clear to you. Three questions about this. Question number one. How exactly are these heroes of faith an encouragement to us? We could say they're generally encouraging, right? They were motivated by their stories. They're inspiring. But there's something even deeper going on. How exactly are they an encouragement to us? You could say, the temptation is to say empathy, right? Because they went through something worse and they can empathize with us. They can say from experience that they went through something we went through. There's something even deeper than empathy here that I want you to see. Something even deeper than that level. These are people who had great victories through faith. Whether it was through conquest or suffering. But still great victories. They endured great difficulties. But what did they not get? That's the question we need to answer in this verse. What did they not get? They did not get what was promised. Or literally, they did not get the promise. And here we need to distinguish between the promises and the promise. Because weren't some promises delivered to these people? Didn't Abraham get to see Isaac? That was a promise. Didn't Joshua get to go to the promised land? That was a promise, right? So there are the promises, and then there is the promise in chapter 11 of Hebrews. These people that we just mentioned, from verse 1 of Hebrews 11 all the way to verse 38, these were people who did not long enough, did not live long enough to experience the day of Christ. None of them lived long enough to experience what the book of Galatians calls the fullness of time. None of them lived long enough to live under the benefits of the new covenant. They were saved by faith, yes, but they did not live under the benefits of the new covenant. So how is this an encouragement to us? I want you to think on this deeper level, something beyond empathy. How is this an encouragement to us? How are they? How are their stories an encouragement to us? They held on because they were seeking something that you and I already 
They held on. They persevered. They continued by faith because they were seeking something that you and I in this room and that the original readers of this letter, something that we already have. Now, do you begin to see how that can motivate us? We have it. They persevered without it. They persevered without that experience of being under the new covenant. We are in the new covenant. We are living under the benefits of the new covenant. We have what they were seeking. How much more, then, can we persevere? That's the point he's getting at. We have something far better. What mediator did they have? Levitical priests. The book of Hebrews, you know how, what the book of Hebrews calls the Levitical priests? Calls them weak. It's the words of Hebrews. Weak mediators. What do we have? A better mediator. A better high priest. An eternal son. The eternal son of God. What covenant did they live under? The old covenant. A covenant that God designed to one day become obsolete. A covenant that only shuts us all up under sin. That's what they lived under. The old covenant. But what covenant do we have? What covenant do we live under as God's people today? A better covenant, a new covenant, better promises, better everything. That's what we have. They were seeking it. They were looking ahead to what we have. And they still persevered. They still made it, even though they did not get the promise. We have the promise in our hands. How much more can we persevere? That's the point that he's getting at. The second question we need to answer from this text, from these two verses is, whose plan was this? This is even more encouraging. Whose plan was this? Verse 40 says, something better was provided for us. Something better was provided for us. But who provided it? Whose plan? What does the text say? We just decided that we get to be placed into this time of history, and we just decided that we get to do it now and because we're better? What, did, what does it say? God provided it. God looked ahead and provided us. Purely God's sovereign will. He has allowed us to live on this side of the cross. That's it. Provided. For, for your Greek guys out there, problepo. To look ahead. To see ahead of time. In eternity past, God saw. He made his plans. And he put them into action in time, space, and history. That we, this side of the cross, would live under the glories of the new covenant. That's the privilege We talk about privilege a lot today. This is the true privilege that we have as God's people living under the new covenant. Gets even more encouraging. Third question. How close are we? How close are we? And when I say we, I'm not talking about the Hebrews anymore. I'm talking about us in this room. How close are we? I'm going to show you my professional timeline. Hopefully you can read it. Think about this. We've seen stories from before the flood, then during the flood, after the flood, we've seen the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've seen stories about the exodus and the wanderings, stories about the conquest of Canaan, stories about the prophets, or they didn't even get to. And then Hebrews has been expounding since chapter 1, the gospel, the cross of Christ, the final sacrifice of Christ for us. Then he bridges it to the application for his original readers. And then where are we in this picture? Look how close we are. Now, don't panic. There's a lot more to eschatology than this, okay? Don't panic, okay? But this is what we're looking forward to. An inheritance, a new 
Jerusalem. We are closer than anyone has ever been in church history today. And tomorrow we're going to be even closer than we were today. Jesus says, I'm coming back soon. We are almost there. This, is, this hopefully is encouraging to you. Hopefully it's more than that. So the author of Hebrews is encouraging his readers to persevere. Summarize it all. He's grounded that encouragement in the reality that many believers from history have persevered, have been victorious by faith. He's grounding it in those stories. He's told them that God has given us this side of the cross something better than all those men and women of faith ever had. The new covenant he's telling us is everything that we need. We are fully sufficient in Christ. The original readers at that point in history were closer to heaven than anyone had ever been, and now we today are even closer than they were. answer is the same for us today. So a couple questions as we close up. Is that the right answer? To be more clear, is eternity the right answer? Is inheritance through faith? An eternal perspective. Is that the right answer? Did we read something into the text that doesn't belong there? Did we neglect some other major part of Scripture and come up with the wrong answer with this? Is eternity the wrong answer? Think about it. This passage, God's Word as a whole, is always pointing us back to the reality of an eternity with Christ. Always pointing us to eternal life. Looking ahead to the eternity that we're going to spend with Christ forever. The scripture is always pointing us back to that is the right answer. We've seen it in the text, and it is the right conclusion. Second question we have to ask. Is that answer good enough for you? Is that answer good enough for you? Eternity. I ask that because this answer is under attack, isn't it? Definitely under attack. It's always been under attack. Say, you've heard the old phrase, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. No one uses that anymore, but that's what they always used to accuse Christians of. They say, you're, or you're just pie in the sky, right? You're just in the sweet by and by, you're going to eat pie in the sky. Don't worry about the problems you're having now, but one day it's going to be all better and there's no problem. Or you're accused of, you don't have any real solutions for today. Or you don't care about all the evil that's happening around us today. Ever heard those accusations? And that's all they are. Accusations, they're stereotypes. I say that they're stereotypes because God himself is one of the greatest advocates for the helpless, isn't he? He tells us to take care of orphans and widows in their distress. He tells us these things. What about all the orphans and widows who don't get helped? Does that ever happen? What about, as you're slowly, quietly being lowered into your grave, what about all the unresolved problems that linger on? What happens then? Only true hope we have is exactly what is pointed us back to here, our eternal inheritance. Being in the new covenant, being one of God's children. In every one of our lives, Each of us in this room, there's always going to be forks in the road. Don't pick it up and take a bite. There's going to be forks. There will always be a path on one side. I don't know if it's left or right. That's I don't know. I'm not going to say that. There's always going to be a path of faith. 
that leads to the new Jerusalem. And then there will be a path of unbelief that will lead to misery and destruction. You'll always have that fork. People in this world will always have that fork. There is no alternate route to obedience. There is only one path to life. There's only one way to please God. Only one way for God to commend you. And what is that? Faith. Faith in the finished work of Christ. And that's it. Think of a story. Put yourself back in medieval times. Think of a, a castle, a king. Think of knights, all these things. There's this great king. He loves his people. He takes care of his people. He's kind to his people. But one day he says, I've got to go on a journey. I'm going to come back soon. And when I come back, I'm going to fix everything that went wrong. I'm going to make everything right. And on top of that, I'm going to make it even better and bigger. And it's going to last forever. And people from nations that you never even heard about or ever even thought about, they're going to come and stream to it. And all of you will see my glory. You'll be satisfied with me. I will fix every problem. You will be fully satisfied in who I am. The king goes on a journey. And you guess what happens? An evil king takes his place. And somehow this evil king convinces all the knights, convinces 99% of the people in the kingdom to follow him. He promises them everything, and they are entranced. They're seduced. Their allegiance is to him. And they love him. Even though he's a quick, cruel, wicked, mean, evil king. But there's an eclectic group of people. There's some nobles, some few stable boys, some blacksmiths, some different people who come together and they still love the king. They still remember the king's instructions. They still remember exactly what he told them. Then they have kids and they have kids and they pass the story down through generations and then they're wondering when this king is coming back. Would it make sense for these people who you're not going to get anywhere with this evil king. All of your attempts, all the attempts they've made to overthrow this king have, have gone astray, gone by the wayside. All of them are futile. Where do you think they're going to put all their hope? What do you think they're going to tell each other? What do you think they're going to pass on to the next generation? They're going to pass on the instructions of the king that one day he's going to come back. He's going to make everything right. And it's exactly what God does for us all throughout his word. It's exactly why we meet together every single week, to tell each other, although there's problems all around us, we still have a king who's going to come back and we will see his glory and we will bow the knee to him and we will be fully satisfied with who he is and what he's done. Inheritance through faith. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for the promises that you made to us. We thank you, Lord, that we are this side of the cross. We live under the new covenant. We have a better mediator. We have a better high priest, an eternal Christ, Lord, with an eternal sacrifice that will be forever effective, Lord, to forgive us of our sins, to give us a clear conscience, Lord, to give us eyes that can see your glory, to be satisfied with your glory. And I do pray, Lord, that we see more of Christ this week and that be more and more satisfied with what he's done. And we do love you. We do pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews 6, verse 11 and 12 says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You're dismissed.